feel that this is a little bit like the graveyard shift, and when you hear the talk I'm going to give just now, you'll understand that there's a bit more to that than meets the eye. Um, I'm not sure I should have had that piece of pavlova, uh, but thank you for your hospitality and for your welcome and for all that we've enjoyed together, and I'm looking forward to hearing some more of those reports later on this evening. I want you to turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, uh, yes, uh, no, chapter 2, we'll, we'll go to, yes we will, chapter 2, um, although chapter 1 I'm going to be looking at as well, but for the sake of time we'll just read chapter 2. And this might seem a little unusual, but um, bear with me and I hope by the end you will see where we're going with all of this. So 1 Kings chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt round his waist and the, on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. I therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, and the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and for 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. May God bless to us his word. On Monday the 6th of December 2010, I was visiting my mum and dad in Coleraine, as we often did on Mondays. Just as I was leaving, I noticed that my father's ankles were a bit swollen. My mother hadn't picked up on it. But the following day, she thought she'd better get the doctor to have a look at him. It turned out that he had heart failure. The following Sunday, I got a phone call to say that he'd been admitted to hospital, and that was the beginning of the end. He was subsequently transferred to a nursing home. By that stage, he was barely able to communicate, though he didn't appear to have suffered a stroke. And for the first time in my life, I found myself sitting at the bedside of a blood relative who was dying. That moment came on Monday, the 31st of January. 
My mother and sister had just gone home to freshen up, having sat with him all night. I was the only one with him in the room. I noticed a change in his pallor and called the nurse. When she saw him, she suggested I should go and get my mother and my sister. But before I'd reached the bottom of the stairs, she came running after me to say there wouldn't be time. As I re-entered the room, my father was breathing his last, and within a few moments, he was gone. That's the context of the record which we have in these opening chapters of the book that we know as First Kings, because here the scene that we are presented with is that of a dying man. And as the specter of death raises its ugly head, it draws out a number of responses to death which continue to be common among us. There is, first of all, the response of David's servants. The servants treat David's death as a problem to be solved. Theirs is perhaps the most understandable of the responses and the most frequently repeated, for their assignment is to serve the king, and they see their task now as getting him back on his feet and acting again like his old self. And so, verse 1, they do everything they know how to do, which in this case is piling on more and more blankets. From our vantage point, it's not the most sophisticated of medical treatments, but for them, it was the best thing available, and that was what they provided for him. But the king was no better. And so in their desperation, you'll see this in chapter 1, the servants began to look for a miracle cure, and they set themselves, verse 2 of chapter 1, to find a young virgin who would take care of the king and lie beside him. We don't know where they got that idea from. Perhaps it came from the old fertility myths of Canaanite religion, but wherever it came from, they considered it worth a try. A suitable candidate was found, verse 3, in the form of a young girl called Abishag, who was brought to the king. But while she attended him and took care of him, the king remained weak and impotent, so that, verse 4 of chapter 1, he knew her not, which is a polite way of saying he had no intimate relations with her, which seems to have been the hope of his servants when they embarked upon their alternative medicine. The servants were clearly well-intentioned. But you can't help wondering if the frenzied activity in which David's servants engaged as they tried to find a cure for this dying man was also their way of avoiding the problem of death. Because as long as David's servants can keep themselves busy looking for cures and remedies and treatments, they don't have to look death in the face. And even more significantly, as far as the servants are concerned, they don't have to talk about death to the person who's dying. Because they're so busy doing these other things. And often we are no different. Some years ago, I came across a little poem which I've sometimes read at funeral services because of how it depicts the way in which we so often skirt around the subject of death and dying in the hope that we might be able to fix it rather than having to face it. I huddle warm inside my corner bed watching the other patients sipping tea. I wonder why I am so long getting well and why it is that no one will talk to me. 
The nurses are so kind, they brush my hair on days I feel too ill to read or sew. I smile and chat and try not to show my fear, but they will not tell me what I want to know. The visitors come, I see their eyes become embarrassed as they pass my bed. What lovely flowers, they say. Then hurry on, in case their faces show what can't be said. The surgeon comes with student retinue, mutters to sister, deaf to my mute plea, I want to tell them of the dread I feel inside, but they are all too kind to talk to me. The chaplain passes on his weekly round, a friendly smile and calm, untroubled brow. He speaks with deep sincerity of life. I'd like to speak of death, but don't know how. It's a moving expression of the difficulty that surrounds death and dying. One writer has described it as the universal human repression of our day. And I must confess that even those of us who are Christian pastors can struggle sometimes to talk to someone about their dying rather than their living. And yet we must if we're to face that which is common to us all. But let's move secondly to the response of Adonijah, to the fact that his father is a dying man. As the oldest of David's sons, Adonijah is in line to succeed him to the throne. And for him, the moment of his accession to the throne has suddenly come closer, for his father is clearly nearing the end of his days. But rather than wait until his death, Adonijah's response to David's impending demise is to take power into his own hands. His father, after all, is no longer capable of functioning as king. The country needs leadership, and Adonijah, as the eldest surviving son, is doing the only logical and responsible thing by taking charge himself. And in his actions, you will see in verse 7 of chapter 1, he has the support of two of the most prominent people in the land, Abiathar the priest and Joab the general. And so in verse 5, we read that Adonijah exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He even arranges a coronation ceremony in verse 9, to which everybody who was anybody was invited, though the list you will notice did not include the names of a number of significant individuals, including Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest, and Solomon his brother. But as the narrative goes on to make clear, Adonijah entreating his father's imminent death as an opportunity for his own personal advancement actually precipitated his own death. Shortly after his coronation, David did die, but by then Solomon had been anointed and crowned by David's own orders, and Adonijah was thereby exposed for the opportunist that he was. But though he was then spared by Solomon, in spite of his attempt to seize the throne, Adonijah continued to be as grasping as ever. And in chapter 2, verse 17, we're told he asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, to ask Solomon for Abishag, the Shunammite, who'd attended to his father David in his dying days, to be given to him as a wife. And he made his request not because of any love he had for Abishag, but because she provided a powerful symbolic link with David and therefore a possible way by which he might yet undermine the reign of Solomon and so become king himself. Solomon, however, saw the request for what it was, and he subsequently ordered Adonijah's execution for what amounted to an act of treason. What made Adonijah what he was? 
We're given a major clue, I think, in chapter 1, verse 6, where the narrator tells us his father never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking, why have you done thus and so? And what that's telling us is that while Adonijah himself was obviously strong-willed and self-opinionated, his father had never sought to discipline him. That is always a mistake. And we find that Adonijah, as we're introduced to him, has little or no respect for his father because his father never disciplined him. And the moment he senses his father might be dying, he makes a grab for power. I wish I could say I'd never seen that happen. I wish I could say I've never seen sons and daughters jostling for position even as their aging father or mother is dying. But I have particularly when their parents' intentions have not been clearly stated as in the making of a will, and the result has been a divided family torn apart by sibling rivalry, which can be at its worst at the bedside of a dying parent. It's interesting, however, that in this particular narrative, Solomon, David's other son, who must have known of his father's intention to make him his successor, makes no attempt to push his claim. And even when others sought to rise the king into action so that the way would be open for Solomon to come to the throne, there's no suggestion Solomon himself sought to stir up support or even curry his father's favor. The contrast here, therefore, is between the man who exalts himself and says, I will be king, and the man who waits for God to work things out in his way and his time. The third response to David's dying is that of Bathsheba. Her task is to make sure that Solomon succeeds David as king, not merely because he is her son, but because David himself had promised on oath, chapter 1, verse 17, that it would be so. But David has been negligent in that he hasn't publicly stated his intentions. And so if David dies, there will be a right royal mess. Bathsheba, therefore, is only being responsible in what she's doing. But the deficiency in her response lies in that very word, only. And once again, it's the sighting of Abishag's name that draws attention to what is lacking in Bathsheba's response to the nearness of David's death. Because the text tells us in verse 13 that it was only after Nathan, the prophet, had drawn Bathsheba's attention to the danger being posed by Adonijah that Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his chamber where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Now again, do you see the contrast? David is dying. Abishag is with him. But Bathsheba, his wife, is not. And the thing that brings her to his bedside isn't so much the fact that her husband is dying, but the need that there is to sort things out before he dies. It is, of course, a necessary action, and because of her intervention and that of Nathan the prophet of the Lord, the kingdom passes to Solomon, as God himself had declared that it should. But there is nevertheless something highly insensitive in what Bathsheba did, even though it was something that had to be done for the sake of the kingdom. And I wonder if there's not a parallel here in the fact that more and more elderly people today find themselves 
having to die alone. There will, of course, be an attendant or a nurse or a carer. And insofar as they can, they will ensure that the needs of the dying person are met. But I have sometimes looked in vain for the next of kin. It's not that there aren't any relatives. There usually are. It's not even that they don't know that their elderly relative is dying. It's just that they don't see it as their responsibility. Until it gets to the stage where things have to be sorted out like the funeral arrangements and the personal effects. And then they come, but it's largely because they have to rather than because they want to. So here are three responses that people often make when they're confronted with death. Some, like David's servants, refuse to face it. They'll try almost anything to prevent it happening. Others, like Adonijah, are opportunists who are quick to take advantage of a situation in which they can further their own ends. And others, like Bathsheba, remain detached and distant, doing what is required of them at certain points, but nothing more. But we come fourthly, and this is the main point of what I want to say tonight, to the response of David. And his response is to send for Solomon, his son and heir, because there are certain things that he wants to say to him. And these things are made all the more urgent by the fact that David, to use his words in chapter 2, verse 2, is about to go the way of all the earth. Because David knows he's dying. And unlike those around him, he recognizes that fact and he faces up to it. And he uses the time that he has left to give moral and spiritual instruction to his son. And I want to distill what he says to Solomon into three words of counsel. Because this is about legacy. This is about passing something on to the next generation. And that's what makes this important. Here's the first thing that David says. It is to be faithful. To the Lord your God. Verse 2. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God. Now when David urges Solomon to be strong. And show himself a man. He's not telling him to join a gym and pump iron. That's not the kind of strength he has in mind. Because what David's talking about here is spiritual strength. It's very similar to Paul's exhortation. When he says to the Christian believers in the church at Ephesus. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And in what Paul says. There's a wonderful combination of the human and the divine. We have to resolve to be strong. We have to make every effort to strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But as we do so, God himself blends his power into our lives and infuses his might into what we do for him. You see the same combination in the exhortation that Paul gives to the believers in the church at Philippi when he urges them to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God, he says, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what David's saying to Solomon. He's to be strong. But his strength is to be in the Lord. Now let me pause and pursue that for a moment or two. And to underline its importance for those of you here, and there are a number in this position, who are parents. When I was at primary school, 
the local ministers came in to take assembly once a month. And after the assembly was over, the P6 class was asked to wait in the hall, and we were then divided up according to our particular denomination. And it usually ended up as four groups, Presbyterian, Church of Ireland, Methodist, others. And for those who weren't sure what denomination they were, the teacher who was dividing us into groups would then ask, what Sunday school do you go to? And only very rarely would anyone have said they didn't go to any Sunday school because that was the norm then. But not anymore. And if you were to ask that question of a typical class in a primary school today, it would be the reverse. With only a small minority attending Sunday school or church. And the reality is that Christian parents are now sending their children out from Christian homes into a world that is no longer sympathetic to the Christian faith. Not so long ago, I read an article about the church in Australia in which the author made this observation. He said, for Christians in Australia, the chances that any of us will lose our lives to religious violence are exceedingly small, but they are not zero. The idea that a Christian will lose their life in Australia for being a Christian in my lifetime is far from unthinkable. Similarly, the chances that Christian churches will find themselves unable to find a place to meet or that someone will face a prison term for teaching Orthodox Christian doctrine are not great, but neither are they remote. As a parent in raising my children to follow Jesus, I am asking them to bear a greater cost for following him than I have had to do. And that sobers me. And it should sober you. Because what that means for the children and the young people in our congregations today is that if they are going to serve the Lord, they will need courage. But then that's what men and women of God have always needed. An old Puritan pastor by the name of William Gurnall put it like this. He said, do not say you have royal blood in your veins and have been born of God unless you can prove your pedigree by this heroic spirit that dares to be holy in spite of men and devils. That's what David now says to Solomon. Be strong and show yourself a man and be faithful to the charge that the Lord your God has given. But how do you do that? Here's the second piece of counsel. Be obedient to the word of God. Of God. Look at how David continues, verse 3 of chapter 2. Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimony as it is written in the law of Moses. And what he's saying here is that the way to be strong and to be faithful to the Lord your God is to be obedient to his word and keep his commands. Now, when you mention the commandments of God, In many parts of the evangelical church today, you will raise hackles. Because it has almost become our default position that when the commandments of God are mentioned, we respond by saying that doesn't apply to us because we're not under law, we're under grace. And we set the one over against the other. That's not what the Bible does. 
It doesn't set grace and law in opposition to each other in the way that we so often do. Because what the Bible tells us is that God's love gave us his law. Just as his love gave us the gospel. And just as there can be no spiritual life for us apart from the gospel, which points us to Jesus Christ as our only Savior, there can be no spiritual health for us apart from the moral law in which God has shown us how to live. Ralph Erskine, who was a Scottish minister in Dunfermline in the 18th century, seeks to express this in poetic verse. And he puts it like this. When law and gospel kindly meet, to serve each other both unite. Sweet promises and stern commands do work to one another's hands. Those that divide them cannot be the friends of truth and verity, yet those that dare confound the two destroy them both and gender woe. To run, to work, the law commands. The gospel gives me feet and hands. The one requires that I obey, the other does the power convey. You see the relationship? The lie of the enemy of our souls is that all the good stuff in life lies outside of God's boundaries. And in this regard, Satan has a particular interest in those who have grown up in families of faith. And he comes to the children and the young people of Christian parents, just as he came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he insinuates that the commands of God that they've been taught are restrictive and oppressive. And they're keeping them from the good stuff. And we need with wisdom and with patience to hold out to them the danger of stepping outside of God's boundaries and show them what their souls seek cannot be found out there, but only in following Christ. That's why David goes on to say to Solomon, verse 3, if he walks in God's ways and keeps his statutes and his commandments, his rules and his testimony, as written in the law of Moses, he will prosper in all that he does and wherever he turns, and that as a result he will see the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him, verse 4, to establish his throne forever. It is, of course, in grace that God makes his promises. He's not dependent on us for their fulfillment because he is sovereign. He will achieve his purposes for this world with or without us. But there are all kinds of promises in the Bible that God gives specifically to those who are prepared to obey him. Think, for example, of the promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in John 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. But how? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And watch the result. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And the Apostle John, who recorded these words in his gospel and knew their reality in his own life as a disciple of Jesus, later wrote in his first letter, By this we know. That we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Not for the person who's been truly born of God. 
And that's reflected in what David says to Solomon as he quotes the word that God had spoken to him, saying, verse 4, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And notice that phrase, with all their heart and with all their soul. Because there is a kind of obedience, and we all know it when we see it, which is slavish and grudging. But that's not what's in view here. What God is looking for is an obedience that comes from the heart and is motivated by love. So David's counsel to Solomon is to be faithful to Lord his God. The way to be faithful to God is to be obedient to his word, walking in his ways and keeping his commandments. But there's a third part to David's counsel to Solomon, which is contained in verses 5 to 9. It's focused on three individuals. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, verse 5. Barzillai the Gileadite, verse 7, and Shimei the Benjaminite, verse 8. David instructs Solomon to show kindness to Barzillai and his family and make provision for them because they'd shown loyalty to him during the time of Absalom's rebellion. But he's to deal very differently with Joab and Shimei who are to pay for their misdeeds. And the rest of chapter 2 describes how these two men met their end. What then is all this about? What are we to make of it? Well, the clue, I think, lies in the phrase that's found at the end of verse 12 of chapter 2, and then again at the end of verse 46. Look at verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Verse 46 of the same chapter, chapter 2. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This is what this is about. It's about the establishing of the kingdom. And in these two men, Joab and Shimei, the establishment of the kingdom through Solomon, as promised by God to David, will be threatened and undermined. And David's counsel to Solomon, therefore, is to be zealous for the kingdom and to take whatever action is necessary to ensure that the kingdom is firmly established. Now, we, of course, are not to literally follow David's instruction to Solomon with regard to Joab and Shimei. This is an instruction that's given within the context of the establishment of God's kingdom at a particular time in the outworking of the redemptive history of the life of the nation of Israel. But there is a principle here nevertheless. That principle is twofold. It is on the one hand to deal decisively with evil and it is on the other to be quick to do good. Joab was a seditious and murderous man That evil needed to be dealt with. Shimei was a man who'd cursed David. That evil needed to be dealt with. And it needed to be dealt with decisively. And isn't that the principle that lies behind the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? When he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Deal decisively with evil. That's the principle. But at the same time, be quick to do what's good. David says to Solomon, verse 7, Deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. 
And the Apostle Paul expresses this very principle in Romans chapter 12 in the practical instructions he gives to the church in Rome where he says, verse 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Because that's what it means to live under the rule and reign of God and to be zealous for his kingdom. It is to deal decisively with evil on the one hand and it is to be quick to do good on the other. So here then are the words of a dying man to his son and heir. A man who is passing something on to the next generation. And what choice words they are. Be faithful to the Lord your God. Be obedient to his word. And be zealous for his kingdom and for his glory. And having spoken these words and given this counsel, the next thing we're told in verse 10 is that David then slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. We're told nothing about his funeral. We don't know who was there. We don't know what was said. But in the book of Acts and in chapter 13, Luke records a summary of a sermon that was preached by Paul in the Jewish synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. And in it, Paul shows how what God had promised in the Old Testament was now fulfilled in Jesus. And in it, he refers to King David. And one of the things he says there about David is this, that David... After he had served the purpose of God for his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father. David was not a perfect man. We know that from the record. His life was marred by moral failure, his family was divided. That division continued even after his death. But the epitaph that is written over him in Scripture is that by the grace of God, David served the purpose of God in his own generation. In a book called Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper describes a plaque that hung in his mother's kitchen over the sink. It was a simple piece of glass painted black on the back with a grey link chain around it for a border and for hanging. On the front in old English script painted in white were the words, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. To the left beside those words there was a painted green hill with two trees and a brown path that disappeared over the hill. And John Piper tells of how as a boy he would look at that brown path representing his life and wonder what would be over that hill. He still has that plaque. Only now, as you can see, it sits on the mantel shelf in his study where he sees it every day. But the message he said was clear. You get one pass at life. That's all. And the lasting measure of that life is Jesus Christ. David served the purpose of God in his own generation.
And that's the challenge for us. And particularly for those of you who are younger here. Not to waste your life. But we mustn't overlook the second part of the sentence because it says that after David had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he died and he was buried. And there's a challenge there too, especially for those of us who are older, to make sure that we have prepared ourselves properly for that day. It was the comedian Woody Allen who humorously articulated what many of us have probably thought when he once said of death, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But however we may shrug it off, the fact remains that death is the one appointment that none of us can miss. We cannot cancel it. We cannot show up late for it. And we need, therefore, to make sure not only that we're right with God ourselves, but also that we've said what we want to say and what we need to say to our loved ones, be it our spouse or our children or our grandchildren before that day comes. And I pray that the Spirit of God will so work in our minds and our hearts that we will, by the mercy of God, whether we're older whether we're younger, serve the purpose that he has for us in our generation and not waste that one precious life that he has given us to be lived for his glory and for his praise, both now and then in eternity, forever and ever. Amen.